Good morning. It is good to see you guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. All right, we're heading back into Romans 8 this morning. Romans 8. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, flip open to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 944, page 944, continuing our walk through Romans 8, specifically this first section, this first paragraph, right? Um, several weeks ago, when I introduced us to Romans 8 and, and kind of was introducing the study of this chapter, we walked through the parable that is known as, as the parable of the prodigal son, right? We talked about how it's, it's better named the parable of the two sons, or even better, the parable of the prodigal father. Prodigal means wasteful, right? And, and you had two sons, and, and it was the father who was ridiculously and gracefully wasteful in that story, right? Uh, Rembrandt painted one of the most famous pictures of that parable. Uh, put it on the screen behind me, uh, hopefully. Yeah, huh? that actually works all right. I'll explain why. Um, our, our projector's pretty underpowered for this much light. So you get a, a little bit of a glimpse at it. Rembrandt was a master with light. Whenever you look at a, a Rembrandt painting, you, you, you really need to pause and pay attention to how the light falls across whatever he's painting because it's significant, it's important. He uses light in a very compelling way to highlight specific things and he uses shadow so it draws the eye and it draws the attention in to what he is, is trying to get us to focus on in this scene, right? And so in this chapter, you can see how light is used, right? Um, you can, down here, you can see it in greater detail, but up there, of course, it's um, uh, you can see it more clearly because all you can see is the light. Um, but in the light, what you see is the prodigal son, right? You, you see him, he's shabby, he's, he's dirty, he's broken, he's only got one shoe. Um, and, and you see the father laying his hands in blessing on his broken son, right? It highlights the, the son's need and the father's gentleness. It highlights this, this incredibly tender moment in which a son comes home and finds not, not the wrath of his father, not the rejection of his father, not the judgment of his father, but the graceful blessing of his father, right? And in the shadows around them are other figures, right? His older brother, who, who is judging the younger brother and judging the father for being so wasteful with his, with his, his, his acceptance. There are some neighbors in, in the image that are just in the shadows, right, that, that, are, that are kind of judging as well. But here's the thing, the way Rembrandt paints it, everything else kind of falls away. All the stuff that if we were in the room, that's the stuff we'd probably be attuned to, right? We'd be attuned to the, to the whispering and the backbiting and the, and the, and, and the judging looks and the, but in Rembrandt's photo, his painting, not photo, painting, um, everything else just kind of fades away. And all you see, all you hear, all you experience is this moment of tenderness, this moment of blessing, this moment of acceptance, right? Um, the masterful use of, of light. The reason I wanted to show you this, this painting is because I believe that's really what Paul is doing in our section in the beginning of Romans 8. Um, he, he is putting a spotlight, a bright spotlight on the blessing we've received from the Father. He's, he's highlighting it by, by um, highlighting the darkness around the blessing as well. Right? He's highlighting who we were in the flesh and who we are now in Christ 
Um, he's, he's highlighting how imprisoned and helpless and hopeless we were compared to how free and how blessed we are. Um, and, and I think he's doing it this way for the same reason Rembrandt did. Right? Rembrandt painted this way to provoke a response within us. That we would see something that, that, that caused us to respond. He's, he's drawing our heart's attention, right? When he looks at this, he's, he's not just painting a scene. He's, he's painting an experience and he's, and he's wanting us to respond in a very specific way. And I believe that's what's happening with Paul. That Paul is, is calling us to, to consider these truths, to see this incredible thing so that we'll respond, right? I'm going to remind you that we're in, in, in all of Romans 8, there's not a single command. There's not a single verb in the imperative voice. Romans 8 is not a chapter that tells us what to do. It is a chapter that describes the Father's blessing to us to invite us to respond. And in this opening section, um, you feel it um, because there's really, uh, this, is, this is lovely to teach, really hard to preach. And I'll tell you why, because um, there's nothing here. For me to say, okay, now here's what I want you to do. Here's the five practical points. Here's what my job this morning is to open up this passage in such a way that hopefully the light falls on the beauty of our justification in a way that it causes your heart to respond. That you will see and wonder. That you will see and be grateful. That you will see and ultimately be changed because ultimately the only way we change is, is not by working for God, but responding to God. We're going to get into that over the next couple of weeks because that is where the chapter goes. But this morning we're just going to, we're going to work our way, uh, through, through this text. And I'm going to warn you, it is, it is a little technical. And as a result, this morning is going to be a little more teachy than preachy. So I would encourage you to, if you, if you brought your, uh, your journaling ESV Romans, uh, Bibles, we, we handed those out to all the members over the course of the last year. Um, or if you have your own personal Bible, write in it, right? Take some notes, think about it, sit in it, uh, cause today is going to be a little more teachy than preachy, but I believe, um, what we're looking at has the power to change us from the inside out. So let's take a look at Romans 8. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 11. Um, even though this is from 1 to 11 is really all one passage. We left off in 4 last week, so we'll start in 5. All right, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, um, so we're jumping into the middle of a paragraph, right? We're jumping into, a, into the middle of a thought, and, and as a result of that, um, I want to remind you what we covered last week, what we talked about, because... It's all connected, right? It's all one thought, right? The, our passage began in Romans 8.1 with that incredible proclamation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we saw last week how Paul supports that, right? We're not condemned 
because he condemned our sin in his flesh, right? He took our condemnation on our behalf, right? Um, so there's no condemnation left for us. He condemned our sin in his flesh. And, and as a result, um, the power of the Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death, right? What the Mosaic law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, right? Um, Jesus uh, was born, right? God became flesh, and he was born very specifically as a Jewish man under the Mosaic covenant, like all Jewish people were. He was born under the covenant that his forefathers had entered into with God, uh, and that covenant said, if you disobey, you'll be cursed, but if you obey, you'll be blessed. No one had ever obeyed. No one had ever earned the blessing of the, of the law until he lived. He came and he fulfilled the law. Right? He had the righteous requirement of the law. He was perfect in regard to the law. And as a result, he earned its blessing and claimed it. And it is, now stands as a covenant fulfilled. It's no longer a covenant in force. It's a covenant fulfilled because it's already paid out its blessing. Right? It paid it out to Jesus. And then he did around it, turned around and did the unthinkable. Right? Jesus, who earned the blessing of the law, then died under its curse. Right? The law says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Jesus, who earned the blessing voluntarily, in love, then took the curse of the law on our behalf. He who obeyed it was treated as if he didn't. He took the penalty of all those who hadn't, right? And he died uh, under its curse in our place on our behalf, right? Verse 4 tells us, that was the critical verse that we ended with last week. Verse 4 tells us why the Father did this, right? The Father sent the Son and the Son... Uh, sent the Spirit, and, and the Son died and rose again. The Spirit indwells the believers. Why? Verse 4, uh, so that, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He did all of this that we might become the righteous requirement of the law, that we um, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? He did it not just to free us from our guilt, but to deliver us into his freedom. Right? Not just to remove our penalty, but to free us into um, his righteousness. Now, we spoke about this last week, and it's worth making clear again that he's not talking about putting us back under the law to try to earn his favor. Right? It's not that... that this isn't saying, you know, you believed in Jesus, and now that you believed in Jesus, now you can go back and obey the law, right? And that was, there are some people that would teach that, that basically they would say, um, you couldn't obey the law as an unbeliever, but now you can as a believer. And so Jesus died to remove its penalty, and now he sets you free so that you can do what you couldn't do before, which is obey it. And of course, that's exactly not what this passage is saying. Um, he's not talking about putting us back under the law to earn his favor, Right? He didn't die and set us free so that we would get better at keeping the law. That's not what this verse says. It says he did it so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law demands absolute perfect submission and complete alignment of the heart, the head and the hands with the will of God. Right? God's law doesn't, doesn't grade on a curve. And that means that for someone to meet the righteous requirement of the law, it means that they have to, from 
motive through thought through behavior be fully aligned, submissive, and joyfully in tune with the will of God. Right? From, from, from motive to thought to behavior. Right? That, that obedience to the law requires not simply a change of behavior, but a fundamental change in the motivations that drive that behavior. It's not enough to simply resist bad things. To meet the righteous requirement of the law, we must want good things. Like, in other words, are you catching me? Like, like you could cut off every bad behavior in your life. But if you don't change the bad desires that drive those behaviors, you still are not meeting the righteous requirement of the law. Because the righteous requirement of the law is not simply about the manifestation of the behavior, it is about the heart attitude toward God. He's not saying that, that, we are, we are, that he did this so that we would obey the law. He's saying, it, he's saying that he did this that we might be transformed, that we can become the fulfillment of the law, right? To, to obey the law is an impossible goal for us. But the good news is it's not for him, right? He delivered us to set us free. Now, one thing I noticed this week when I was sitting in this that, that I didn't last week, I didn't bring it out last week because it didn't stand out to me, is the use of the passive voice in this verb where it says in, in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Um, notice the passive use. In other words, it doesn't say he did this that you might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. As if there's something active for you to do. It's something that's being done to you. It's something that's being done for you. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you. You're receiving the benefit. You're not doing the action. You're receiving the transformation. You're not the one accomplishing it, right? Even the grammar supports this, this, this driving idea, right? That, that ultimately he's not calling us to something that we need to do. He is, he is explaining to us something we are going to receive, right? Paul is carefully placing the responsibility for this transformation on God, not on us. There is no condemnation for us because he took our condemnation and he did that to make us perfect. To, to align our hearts and our minds and our behaviors completely in line with who He is and, and His will for what is good, right? But, but here's the thing. We're, we're, that's the blessing. We're not just receiving a pardon. We're being the, given the gift of transformation, right? And, and this helps drive us to the point. I want to highlight uh, one thing on our chapter because in Romans chapter 8, there's one idea at the heart of this chapter. Everything is driving toward it and unpacking it. I would actually argue that everything in the book of Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 8 has been driving toward this single idea, and it's in verse 29. Okay, It's the heart of the chapter, and honestly, I think it's the heart of the letter. Right In Romans 8, 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, don't get freaked out because foreknowledge and predestination. We'll get to that, okay? What that means is that God had a plan, and that plan was part of his sovereign decree. And what was his plan? That those whom he foreknew and predestined might be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The goal of this entire process wasn't to get us into heaven, the goal of this entire process wasn't to change our behavior. The goal of this entire process um, was 
that we might be conformed to the image of his son. There's so much there, we're going to unpack it, okay? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God did this to create a new humanity. Not a humanity not shaped by our first father, Adam, but recreated in the image of the last Adam, Christ. No longer shaped by the disobedience of our first father and his rebellion, but shaped by the obedience of our, of our, of our, of our Savior and, and conformed to his image, completely in line with, with who he is. Right? He did this to create a humanity that had been completely redeemed and restored from rebellion, one that would walk in joyful submission uh, to the goodness of his will, living to his glory, and experiencing all the good that he has designed, right? So that's, that's where this is all driving. That's what he means in, in verse 4, where he says that, that he, has, he did all of this, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, right? That we might become like Christ, now, he ends that chapter, he ends that verse by saying, and, and this is for those who walk according to the flesh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but, but according to the Spirit. And last week I highlighted with a, an illustration on conviction. And um, the more I thought about it, the more I, I thought, it's a good, it was a good illustration, um, and uh, it was appropriate. I think I gave it at the wrong time. I think that that illustration should have been given two messages from now. Uh, there is a hint of sanctification, a hint of sanctification in this section, but it's only a hint. The point of this verse isn't, hey, now it's time for you to listen to the Spirit and engage in the process of change. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you will be changed. That's part of the gift of the Father's blessing. He's not challenging us to change. He's saying you will be changed. Do you believe it? That's, that's what he's the question isn't, are you going to engage it? The question is, will you believe it? Because it's his work, not yours. It's what he's doing not for you, not what you're doing for him. All right? there, there is a progressive change in sanctification, and we're going to get into that. right? And there's a hint at it in these verses. But, but in these verses, really what Paul's getting at is not what, what, what it means for us to, to grow in Christ as much as it is for us to receive what Christ has won for us. He's proclaiming, Paul is proclaiming a blessing not exhorting us to do anything with it, at least not yet. Now here's where we get thrown off. And this, is where, this is where I think I've struggled with this passage. Is that when I see the phrase walk in the Spirit, I think that means a progressive walk in submission with God. Right? That, that's how it's used in, in Ephesians 5.16 where it says, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Right? The idea there is, is there's an ongoing walk with the Spirit where I'm learning to be responsive to Him and submissive to Him. And when I do that, like I just have the fruit of the Spirit being produced in my life, right? It allows me to, it gives me the power to overcome sin. It allows me to, to actually experience the blessings of God in my life now, right? So, so when I read walk in the Spirit, I think of this kind of this progressive walk of sanctification, right? But we need to be clear here because while there's a hint of sanctification in this passage, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not comparing how we live and walk. He's comparing where we stand before God. Now as believers compared to when we were unbelievers. He's not challenging us to engage the process of justification or assuming the process of sanctification. He's honestly challenging us to believe the proclamation of justification. This is the key, right? So if we look down at verses 8 and 9, this is really made clear, and I'm sorry again for the technicality, but, but 
I hope it's helpful. Verses 8 and 9. When he's talking about those who walk in the Spirit and those who walk in the flesh, it's really clear, it's important for us to see what he means. In verse 8 and 9, he says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He's not talking about somebody who is walking in the Spirit, struggling with the flesh. We'll get into that. He's talking about two groups of people, two camps, two standings before God. One is in the flesh, and one is in the Spirit. These are two fundamentally different standings before God. And that's the key for us, I think, in understanding that this passage, that he's talking about two realms in which we have existed as believers, in the flesh as unbelievers, and now in the Spirit as believers. So let's take a look at verse 5. That was a lot of explanation to get to verse 5. Thank you for sticking with me. But let's take a look at verse 5 and and see how this plays out in our passage, right? In verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The first thing that makes these two standings before God so radically different is the mindset. You have a fundamentally different mind in the Spirit than you did when you were in the flesh. So when we talk about standing in the flesh, we're talking about somebody who is an unbeliever. We're talking about somebody who who has not received the grace of God, somebody who is is still standing in their rebellion against God. And, And as a result, their mind is controlled by the flesh, right? We've talked about this. This is the the framework of worldliness, right? Worldliness is when we look to this world to do for us what only God can do and be for us what only God can be. Somebody who is standing in the flesh has no choice but to be worldly because they're not connected relationally with God. So they must look to something other than God to do for them what only God can do. They have to look to their jobs. They have to look to their success. They have to look to their relationships. They have to look to their, to their, to their 401ks. They have to, for their security, their significance, their sense of worthiness. They have to look to their pleasures to try to deliver them into their rest. Why? Because, because they're not relationally connected with God, the one who actually meets those deep needs. Their minds are controlled. They are trapped, having been cut off from God, who is the one who fulfills these deep needs and desires. The Greek word for mind here, phroneo, um, it means the mind in the sense of understanding. Uh, the word is often translated harmony or to come in agreement with. The idea is that, is that the mind here is continually seeking to find harmony with its surroundings. And the mind that is in the flesh tries to find harmony with a world without God. The mind that is in the flesh is trying to find harmony or a sense of of direction, a sense of understanding of how to find the fullness and flourishing of life without the God who gives it. Which means that mind is continually striving to replace God with things that aren't God. That mind is continually, as as Calvin put it, man, we are idol-making factories, right? That there's, There's a continual process of just moving from one idol to the next, right? Oh, that didn't do it for me. This will do it for me, right? Um, that relationship didn't do it for me. Maybe, maybe my career will. That promotion didn't happen. Maybe I'll get a new job. That vacation didn't do it for me. Maybe it'll do this next experience, right? We're just continually looking for something to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. It is a mind enslaved to this need to find harmony in a world in which there isn't any, a mind that is, that is, that is continually looking um, to find life 
without dependence on God and responsive trust to God, right? Um, compared to that is the mind of the Spirit, right? So there's the mind of the flesh. There, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They have no choice, right? But those who live according to the Spirit set their, their minds on the things of, of the Spirit, right? Somebody who's in the Spirit, somebody who has been saved by grace, somebody who has received the benefit of having believed in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. He has died for them and he has received that pardon and, 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 and has come to faith in Christ and now has a, a, a reawakened um, relationship with God through their Savior, right? Um, this person now has the ability to actually have harmony with God. And in fact, the mind of the Spirit is harmony with God. Because the mind of the Spirit is never disconnected from God. The mind of the Spirit is never seeking to find anything outside of God. The mind of the Spirit always pursues the fullness and flourishing of God in the gifts of God, right? There, there's, there's no conflict from motive to mind to behavior, right? We have the mind of the Spirit which leads us, which is fundamentally dependent on God and responsively trusting of God. So, so at this point, I just want you to see, he's, he's comparing two fundamentally different ways to see and interact with the world. You with me? Those who are in the flesh, those who are in the Spirit. Those are two fundamentally different ways of trying to do life, of interacting with the world, seeing the world, thinking about the world, processing the world. Okay, so verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. All right, um, the consequence of being in these two standings before God couldn't be greater. Those that are in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, right? They don't have a choice. They have to try to find harmony within a world in which there is no humble dependence on God, right? So what they do is they seek harmony with the world. Um, but they're doing it without, they're cut off from humble, trusting, dependence on God. And as a result, it says, this mind is death. Now remember, death, the fundamental aspect of death is, is not ceasing to be, it's separation, right? When, when we die spiritually, we are separated from the source of life, God. When we die physically, we're separated from our bodies, okay? We don't cease to exist. We were created in the image of God and we are eternal beings. We do not cease to exist. We, we are separated from the fundamental aspects required for life. The mind of the flesh is Death, it is cut off from God, the source of life. Um, so it's not ceasing to be, it's just cut off from life and, and, and it's trying to do life apart from the source of life. So the mind of the flesh works from death to death. The mind of the flesh works from separation to increased separation. No matter how hard we try to find the fullness and flourishing of life apart from God, no matter what goals we set, no matter if they are rule-keeping or rule-breaking, worthy or unworthy, even if we accomplish our goals instead of failing those goals, we will not get any closer to the fullness and flourishing of life because that is only found in relational connection with God. So it works from death, separation from God, and it results in increased death, increased separation from God. It is the insane pursuit of what cannot be gained in ways that we cannot gain it. I, just pause for a moment. This is like, like we, think, we read about those Greek punishments in Greek mythology. 
You know, those guys that are called to push a rock up a hill every day and, and then it would just roll over them and go back down and every day they, they couldn't get out of it. Like God, the gods had punished them that you have to push it up all over again, right? Or, or, or they would have eyes to, to look at the beauty of the world and then birds would come and pluck them out over the course of the day and they would grow back overnight and it would just happen day after day after day. Listen to me. There is no punishment described in Greek mythology or anywhere else in any kind of literature or philosophy that I think is more profoundly despairing than this. To have desires that you cannot help but try to fulfill, but never have the ability to fulfill. To work from death to death. Every single waking moment compelled by a hunger you will never fill compelled by a need that will never be met, compelled by an itch you will never be able to scratch. And the farther you go, the worse it gets. The hunger only increases. The discomfort only becomes more painful. The itch only becomes uh, more insanely driving. Are you following me? Like, Like what he is describing here isn't just, oh, that's philosophically interesting. It is existentially terrifying. The darkness of of what is being described is is the essence of insanity. Those who are in the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. And those who have their minds set on the things of the flesh, man, the flesh only produces death. They work from death to death. Those who are in the Spirit, though, Stand in a place of relational harmony with God again. Not because they've earned it, but because Christ has earned it on their behalf, right? And the mindset and the spirit is life and peace. Remember, life. This isn't just like, oh yeah, Hallmark, that light, you know, butterflies and a little bit of sunshine and, and some flowers. Oh, that feels good, right? When he says life, he's being technical. What he means is the mind of the spirit is actually connected to the source of life. The mind of the Spirit is actually humbly dependent on the God who fulfills all of our deepest needs and desires. It is life, the fullness of life, the presence of life, the flourishing of life. It is shalom once again. It is life as it was meant to be. And it is peace. Now when he says peace here, again, he's speaking of justification. He's not talking about our experience of peace. He's talking about our standing of peace. The mind of the Spirit stands at peace with God. He's not talking about our uh, experiencing the peace of God. He's talking about our peace with God. We stand in a position of peace. Our standing is life and peace, connected with God with absolutely no hint of condemnation or separation. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. At the end of the verse... Um, to, to set the, the, uh, the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the Spirit, excuse me, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, nor indeed, uh, for it, indeed it, it cannot in, in verse 7. There is, there is no comparison here. Um, we get to verse 7, he just explains the darkness to highlight the light in verse 7. It is simply a statement that highlights the permanent prison of being in the flesh. There's no way out. Because hostility toward God isn't an occasional gesture of rebellion against God. It is a permanent posture of the heart, right? 
um, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That is its permanent posture. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Um, Listen, those who are in the flesh are fundamentally hostile toward God by nature and by behavior. And this is something that's difficult for us to see because ultimately we tend to compare people by good and bad. We have rankings, right? These are good people, those are bad people. These are nice people, those are mean people, right? These are the unjust and these are the just. And we find even in times like this right now where we see nations at war and we see um, people's depravity on display. It's very easy to start celebrating heroes and vilifying villains and creating camps of good people and bad people. And what Paul is telling us is, is there's just two categories, those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. And in the flesh, they're helpless. Right? I don't know if you remember in, in Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, Paul lists a whole bunch of quotations from the Old Testament that describe the depravity of mankind. There were things like, man, the poison of asps is under their lips. Their, their, their hearts are continually wicked. They're continually dreaming of wickedness. Um, uh, there's none who does good. No, not one. Um, they are violent. And, and, and there are all these verses, right? And what's interesting is that in all those verses, the, the Jewish readers would have been very familiar with those verses when they read through them. They would have thought, you're right, you're describing them. You're describing the Putins of the world, right? And you get to the end of that section, and Paul is like, yeah, you know all these verses that are in your scripture? They describe everybody who reads this scripture. You too. This isn't just them. This is, this is religious people. It is irreligious people. It is rebels. It is rule keepers. Um, those who are in the flesh stand in a posture of rebellion against God, right? It, it, it applies to self-righteous religious people as much as self-indulgent irreligious rebels. Listen, remember our, our parable of the younger brother and the older brother, right? Um, the younger brother and the older brother couldn't have looked more different from the outside. One was a rebel who broke the rules. One was a rule keeper who lived up to expectations, one went down the slippery path into self-destruction. The other one was working his way up in the esteem of those who, who saw him. He was responsible. He was disciplined. He did what was expected of him. He kept all the rules. He, 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 he delayed gratification. He did all these good things, right? But at the end of the, of the parable, what we realize is that they're the exact same. They were both trying to get the blessing of the Father without the humble dependence of relationship with the Father. They were both using the Father as a means to an end. They both wanted the blessing of the Father without relationship with the Father. They wanted to use Him. And as a result, at the end, only that's the irony, is only one receives grace. The one who actually comes in their brokenness, aware of their need for grace. Um, all who are in the flesh are hostile toward God at the deepest level of their desires. Because when we're in the flesh, we don't want to humbly depend on God. We want to be God. Those who are in the flesh don't submit to God because they're simply not able to. Their motives are driven in separation from God. They work from death to death. And as a result, they even twist their obedience into perverse forms of disobedience. They do good things for bad motives. 
They become really, really good people, but they do it not because they're motivated by really, really good motives. They do it because that's how they're trying to earn the blessing of the Father. That's how they're trying to get the blessing of the Father without humble dependence on the Father. Those who are in the flesh are fundamentally, inescapably rebellious to God. It's not a problem that can be fixed through willpower or, or, or moral behavior or self-improvement or good intentions because there are none. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. God's law here is not the Mosaic law. It's really an expression of God's good intent for blessing, right? The mindset on the flesh can't submit to God's intentions for goodness. Indeed, it cannot. Why? Because it's in rebellion to God. It it is seeking to supplant God. Verse 8 states uh, the universal truth, right? Those that are in the flesh cannot please God, right? The universal reality of of the hopeless state of us outside of Christ, all who are outside of Christ. It's, it's not that they just disobey sometimes. It, they, they disobey all the time. It's not that they're, they don't measure up part of the time. They, they never. Because even their good deeds are done for wrong motives. I, I, y'all, this is as clear a proclamation as you're going to find of the helpless and hopeless condition of those outside of Christ. Of us outside of Christ. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. No matter how noble, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how self-sacrificing. Because at the end of the day, they are being driven by unseen motives over which they have no control. And those unseen motives are rooted in death. They're rooted in separation from God. And they're seeking to, in some way, rebel against and supplant God. This is, this is the darkness at the back of the picture. This is the, the contrast to this next verse. Because in the next verse, Paul turns on the light. In verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Verse 9. You, however... I don't know about you, but man, that's a deep breath for me. <laughs> it's like, whew, that's dark and hopeless and scary, right? And I see so much of myself in it. <laughs> it's like, man, I, I kind of feel like that's where I belong, right? I, I just, there's, but Paul, man, you, however, Paul draws this drastic and somewhat terrifying dichotomy into the light. I know, man, like when I read this, I don't know about you, but I, I, my heart says, man, I know which box I belong in. And it's not the good one. Like when it says there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, it is always a struggle for me to believe that. Because I know all the ways I failed. I know all the ways I fall short. I know all the, the stupid tricks that I do to, to make people think more highly of me than I, than I know they should. I, I know all the, the, the ways I push my resume across the table. I know all the ways that I'm... But all of those are simply indications that I have not yet fully believed this truth. Because this is one of the most freeing truths you're going to find. I'm not right 
because of what I've done. I'm right because of what he's done. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's telling the Romans, hey, I know which camp you're in, and I want to remind you and reassure you. And he's telling us as 21st century believers, man, man, this is the gift of justification. This may have been who you were, but it is not who you are. Believer in Christ, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. You know why? Not because you fixed yourself or because you were worthy of it or because you did anything that merited it. It's very simply because you have the Spirit in you. Because if you have the Spirit in you, you are in the Spirit. (laughs) Now that if, I don't know about you, but the if sometimes sounds threatening. Because uh, I'm always looking for the ways like, okay, where do I not fit, right? Uh, you, however, are not in the, in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And I'm like, ooh, that if. How do I know? How do I test that? How do I, well, am I sure the Spirit dwells in me? But the if here isn't meant to bring it into question as much as to tell us the condition, okay? Um, he's not saying, if the Spirit of God indwells you, so you better go find out. The if here is a, is a conditional clause that I think could be more accurately translated since. Because Paul is bringing assurance. He's not calling for self-reflection here. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Because you have the Spirit, you are in the Spirit, right? Um, this sentence is not meant to be threatening. It's meant to be clarifying. He is unlocking, he's unpacking the blessing of justification, right? The single and only condition for being in the Spirit has nothing to do with being worthy of it. Nothing to do with, with your behavior. If you have the Spirit of God, you're in the realm of the Spirit. How do you get the Spirit of God? By believing in Christ. It is simply by receiving by faith the gift of justification, receiving the grace extended to you, right? The Father extended His blessing to us through the work of His Son and then embodies that blessing through the indwelling of the Spirit. When you believe in Christ, you receive the blessing of the Father. Every believer has the Spirit. It's not a conditional gift that you earn. It is not something that comes and goes based on whether or not you merit it or are walking in it. It is the gift of God. If you believed in Jesus, the Spirit indwells you. And because the Spirit indwells you, you are in the Spirit. This is the blessing of the Father. Now, I, we're going to get into this. I understand. So, so you're like, but Steve, he's already said we have the flesh. Doesn't the flesh dwell in me? Yes, the flesh does dwell in me, but I'm no longer in the flesh. I'm in the Spirit. And, and we're going to talk about that. Um, aren't we called to walk in the Spirit to put the flesh to death? Yeah, absolutely, we are. We are. But our, that, what we need to understand is that our sanctification flows from our justification, not the other way around. We need to understand these fundamental truths if we're going to walk them out. We need to be convinced that these things are absolutely true however we're living them in the moment because they're not based on how we live, right? We're going to get into all of that in, in the coming weeks. But at this point, Paul is focusing all of our attention on the blessing we received and the glory of the one who gave it. 
Right? He's not calling us to, to examine ourselves. He's calling us to examine Him. He's not calling us to, to look at our deficiencies. He's calling us to look at His sufficiency. He's not calling us to see all the ways we've failed. He's calling us to, to be filled with wonder that we've received a blessing of this magnitude by highlighting how helpless we were and how blessed we are. Follower of Christ, I don't know if there's anything honestly more practical to to your spiritual growth than in considering the blessing of the Father to you in Christ. This isn't something we do. It's something we come to believe. It is something we, we appreciate and see. It is something we will, throughout eternity, I believe, continue to grow and wonder at. And the fact that we can at times look at the blessing of the Father and walk away unmoved is a testimony to how much we need the blessing of the Father. It does not in any way indicate the value of the blessing of the Father. It only indicates how little we value it. And Paul at this point is calling us to respond in wonder, to see it for the beauty that it is. Believer in Christ, you are in the Spirit. There is therefore no, no condemnation. None. Because Christ condemned your sin in His flesh and He gave you His Spirit. And because His Spirit is in you, you are in the Spirit. It is nothing you've done or earned. It is the blessing that's been given. And we're going to see next week this leads to a rather profound hope for our lives. Because we're out of time. So we're going to stop there. And we're going to keep digging in next week. Let me close us in a word of prayer. And and then we're going to share communion. And uh, we'll sing some more. Father, thank you. Um, Lord, I know for myself, I I get restless. Um, It's hard for me, Lord to simply sit and consider what I've received. I want to know what I need to do. I, I have a hard time simply looking at the gift of grace and allowing it to awaken within me gratitude. I, I, that restlessness, man, I, I, I want to fix myself. I want to get to work. I, I, want to, I want to, and Lord, I pray that you would give us calm and content hearts, hearts that are able to simply sit at your feet, to consider your love, to consider your blessing, to, and to see the magnitude of what we've been delivered from, that we might actually be able to look into the abyss of helplessness and hopelessness that, that we had no ability to deliver ourselves from, that we might rightly esteem the beauty of the blessing that we've been given in Christ. And we are now in Christ, in the Spirit, that we now have life and peace, that you will make us the fulfillment of the law, that you will transform us into the image of your Son. 
Lord, awaken our hearts to this. Awaken our hearts to gratitude. Awaken our hearts to wonder. Awaken our hearts to respond to this beauty. And if there are any this morning that are with us that have not yet believed, I pray, Lord, that you would awaken within them a responding faith to the invitation of grace, that they also might receive this incredible gift of life, of blessing, of justification. Meet us in it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.